While you're turning there, I want to say that it's a pleasure to be with you today. I'm very thankful for the opportunity uh, that I have to study with you for a few minutes this morning. Brother Jay has called me several times over the last few years and never seems to work out with our schedule, but I'm very happy to be here today. I hope that I can say something that will benefit you as you go along your way. I've been doing some studying in the book of Ephesians lately. In fact, I'm doing a, a series in Amarillo right now on the book of Ephesians, and I've got a few things I'd like to say about the verses we read in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 23, which is a prayer for enlightenment that Paul has for the church at Ephesus. Just to give a quick uh, background to the book of Ephesians and Paul's letter to them, a lot of Paul's letters deal directly with certain sin problems that congregations were having. Um, if you read the book of Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you're going to see specific doctrinal errors, specific sins that are being dealt with, and Paul is addressing those issues. With the book of Ephesians, there's not really any direct sin problem that the church had there. There's a lot of general Christian knowledge and, and theory when it comes to uh, what it means to be a Christian and what God has done for us, the way He's blessed us in Jesus Christ. And you can really divide the book of Ephesians into two sections. The first three chapters deal with the spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. Um, and there's a lot of theology, a lot of theory and concept about what it means to be a Christian and be a member of God's body or Christ's body. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And by the way, I am reading from the ESV this morning. Um, I know the, a lot of the pew Bibles are New King James, so I'm going to have every scripture on the screen so you'll be able to follow along up here. But that's how Paul's, that's sort of a thesis statement, if you will, for the book of Ephesians, that God has blessed us in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing. And the, the second half of that is in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, or I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So he lays out the theory and the concept. This is what God has done for you. This is the blessings you have in Jesus Christ. And then he lays out what kind of person does that make you want to be? What is the resulting behavior of your knowledge of what God has done for you? And if you lay out in the Ephesians chapter 3, verses, excuse me, 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul lists a very brief but also a very exhaustive list of the ways that God has blessed us in Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to read through that this morning, but he mentions there about us being chosen and predestined in Christ in verses 4 and 5, and how that God's plan from the foundation of the world, before the world was even formed, his plan of salvation was in place in Jesus Christ. And we were chosen and predestined in Him, in Jesus Christ. He was the one that was predestined. He talks about the grace and redemption that is found in Jesus Christ and how it only through the work of Jesus on the cross and the shedding of His blood that we find redemption and the grace of God realized in our life. He talks about His will being made known through Christ. His plan of salvation known to the world. His word revealed to the world. God revealed to the world. He talks about the inheritance that we have in Christ. How you and I one day will receive an inheritance, eternal life. And that's only through Jesus Christ that that happens. We share in His sonship. We are adopted heirs. We are joint heirs with Christ. And finally, he talks about us being sealed with the Spirit in Christ. Verses 13 through 14. How the Holy Spirit is the seal or the earnest of the inheritance that we will receive when our life here is over. And I know you can't read this, you're not meant to be able to, but I've highlighted in every instance, in 12 verses here, Paul is saying, in Christ, 
in him through Jesus Christ, in the beloved, over and over and over. It's all about being in Christ. These blessings are in Christ. And just as a sort of a, a side note, the first several verses talk about the plan of the Father. The second talk about the work of the Son. And the final couple of verses, the seal of the Spirit. So we see the, the Godhead working together, providing these blessings in Christ Jesus. And that leads us to Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. And he says in verse number 15, For this reason, because I have heard your faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he says, for this reason, in other words, the blessings that I've just talked about, and he said, and because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, he's heard about their faith, he's heard about their love of the saints. Those two things coupled together motivates Paul to pray for them. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul's inspired knowledge of, of God's word and of the blessings that we have through Jesus Christ and his knowledge of the church at Ephesus. You know, Paul was very familiar with the church at Ephesus. He spent a lot of time there. He knew these men and women. We read in Acts chapter 20 as Paul is headed back to Jerusalem for a faith that's really unknown to him. He stops in Ephesus and he talks to the elders there. and It's a very emotional farewell. He knows these people. And he's continued to hear about their faith in Jesus, about their love of the brethren, the love of the saints. He said, I always remember you in my prayers. I'm not a big fan of this, this word that people use, prayer warrior. I don't know why I don't really like it. It just seems a little pretentious, or I don't really know. But if there ever was such a thing as a prayer warrior, it was the Apostle Paul. Because he mentions in all of his letters how I pray for you. I remember you. I give thanks for you. Whether it's the church at Ephesus or the church at Colossae or Timothy or Titus, Paul had to have calluses on his knees. He prayed so much. And there's a lesson in that for you, and I think that's kind of a rabbit trail, but we need to always be praying for our brethren, always remembering them in our prayers and being thankful for them. So that's the basis of this prayer that he prays for them. Now he wants to tell them about the purpose. What am I trying to accomplish when I pray this kind of prayer. And he's going to get specific. You know, I love the fact that he gets specific. You know, many times we'll, we'll say, well, I'm praying for you. Or someone say, we're praying for you. And maybe you'll see a, a, a social media post where someone is having a hard time and you see 50 comments with just the word praying. And I don't want to take anything away from that to say that those people aren't sincere, but it's just praying. And I love that Paul gets specific. He says, I'm going to tell you what I pray for. You know, as an elder of our congregation at home, I love it when the members tell me we're praying for you. We know that you're facing a difficult decision. You know, the last 18 months to two years, there were some difficult decisions that church leadership had to make, as all of you well know. And it was very comforting to me when our, the members of our congregation would come to me and say, I'm praying for you in this difficult time. I'm praying that God will give you wisdom to make good decisions, and we're behind you, we're with you. That means a lot. And it says something about our prayer life, I think, that when we get specific and when we tell our brethren, I'm not, not only am I praying for you, this is what I'm praying for. That has a very special meaning. But Paul says, I'm going to pray that God gives you something. I'm going to pray that God gives you, number one, a spirit or an attitude. This isn't, um, this isn't anything supernatural in terms of the spirit. It's talking about an attitude of something. I want God to give you a spirit or an attitude of, number one, wisdom. Now, we could do a word study on the word wisdom, but I think 
we all pretty much understand that wisdom is not simply being smart or having knowledge, but rather the ability to take that knowledge, combine that with our experiences in life, and use that knowledge in a skillful way. That's what wisdom is. And he said, I want you to have a spirit also of revelation. Now, when I hear the word revelation, what do we think of the book of Revelation? We think of symbolic language, and we think about prophecy, and we think about all these kind of things that are sometimes very hard to, to translate and to understand. There's, all there is to this word revelation is a revealing of information, a laying bare or a disclosure of truth. And so Paul is praying that the church at Ephesus will have this spirit of wisdom and revelation when it comes to certain knowledge. He wants them to have their hearts and their minds opened to the Word of God, to truths that can help them and give them power to live their lives as Christians. And so he says here, I want you to have knowledge in Him. Not just any knowledge. Knowledge in Him. Knowledge in God. Knowledge in Christ. You know, there's a lot of knowledge to be had in the world. There, there are many smart people in this room today that have different skill sets. There's some of you that know electricity. There's some of you who know a lot of you who know a lot about farming. There's so much knowledge. I know a little bit about computers, enough to get my job done. And that's all useful information, and it's okay to have that information. There's a lot of useless information probably in this room, too. Some of you in this room can probably tell me the last six or seven starting quarterbacks of the Dallas Cowboys. I, I don't follow the Cowboys. I don't follow football, so I can't do that. Some people can quote the entire opening crawl of the original Star Wars movie from memory. Guilty as charged. <laughs> now, that's not very useful, is it? It's fun at parties, maybe, but it's not very useful. Paul wants them to have useful knowledge, knowledge according to God. And he wants them to be enlightened. He says, I want the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And there's a song in, in this songbook. I don't know if you sing it here, but we sing it at home quite a bit. And that is, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. A lot of times those songs will have a scripture reference at the top of the page, and it points right to this passage we're, we're looking at this morning. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to know you. Open my heart to what you know. That's, the, that's what Paul is praying for them. I want you to have this knowledge of God, and I want, you, I want you to be enlightened. You know, in Acts chapter 26, as Paul is recounting his own conversion, he talks about the miss, mission that Christ gave him. In verse 17, he says, Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. Talk about praying according to God's will. Jesus literally gave Paul the command, you go open the eyes of the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I want you to open their eyes to the truth. Enlightenment, what do we think about when it comes to light? You know, I can navigate through my house at home pretty well in the dark. I know where all the furniture is. And unless the kids have left something laying out where they shouldn't have, which is a very high possibility, I can navigate my way through my house pretty good. But you know, when I take my contact lenses out, I'm basically legally blind. And when it's dark, something falls off my nightstand onto the floor between the nightstand and the bed, a lot of times I'm going to have to turn on a lamp to find it. I'm going to have to shine light. Light provides clarity. Light provides focus. And Paul is wanting them to have their hearts and their minds open and receive this information and have their heart enlightened to bring clarity to the message of the gospel, to bring 
focus to what Christ has done for them. And so he goes into detail here. And what you're going to find as we go through this passage is Paul drills deeper and deeper and deeper. He's basically building upon each point that he makes here. And as he does so, as he goes deeper and deeper, God and Christ are lifted higher and higher and higher in exaltation. And our opinion of our own self is brought lower and lower and lower, exactly as it should be. And so he says, I want you to know something. First, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you. You know, for Christians, hope is a pretty powerful thing, isn't it? The hope that we have in Jesus. The hope of salvation and eternal life. That's what leads us to Christ in the first place, isn't it? We look at our own wretched, sinful, and helpless state before God and realize there's nothing I can do with my own sin. And it's only through Jesus Christ that I have any hope. That's what leads us to Christ in the first place. But what he's saying here is, I want you to know the hope to which you were called. Keep that in mind. Remember that. Because our hope, just like the gospel itself, is not a one and done thing. Our hope doesn't, isn't just the impetus of our faith, but it continues to propel us forward in our journey of faith. Paul says, I want you to remember that hope to which he has called you. And when we talk about hope as a Christian, we don't talk about it in terms of, well, I hope it doesn't rain today. Or I hope I get a raise at work. Hope is not simply wishing for something to happen. Hope is rather an absolute certainty and assurance of our victory in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And Christians have a hope that no one else in the world can understand. Paul says, I want you to know about that hope and remember it in your Christian walk. He says, I want you to know. He talks about the, the Colossians. He says almost exactly the same thing to the, the Colossians. In Colossians 1, verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love of, that you have for all the saints. Almost exactly the same wording that he uses at the church at Ephesus. But then he says in verse 5, he gives them a source of their faith, a source of their love, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. You see, it all comes back to the gospel. Cling to the hope that you have in the gospel. Your hope is based in that, and your faith and love is based in your hope. The second thing he wants them to know, he says, are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You know, when Paul is listing the, the blessings we talked about at the beginning of our sermon this morning, the blessings that we have in Christ, verses 11 and 14 of this chapter talk about the fact that we have an inheritance in Christ. We mentioned that briefly. One day when this life is over, we will inherit the crown of life. And we receive that inheritance because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We share in His reward. It's not our reward, but we share in it because He's made us His own. And that talks about our inheritance in the Lord, but what Paul is doing here is he's turning that coin over. He said, not only do we have an inheritance in the Lord, but the Lord has an inheritance. He says it's the riches of His inheritance. What is His inheritance? It's the saints. That's you and I. It's the believers. And we have, we are God's inheritance, not just any inheritance. This isn't like inheriting some old rusty tractor from your great-great-uncle that's never going to run again. There are riches and glory in this inheritance. That means that God sees us as of great value. 
Does it surprise you to know that God considers you to be a glorious inheritance? His glorious inheritance? How do we know something's of great value? It's what we're willing to pay for it, right? It's what we're willing to give. Think about your own children. Think about what they mean to you. If if your child is sick and hurting and pain, wouldn't you be willing to, to do anything to give up your own life even, to trade the pain and make it your own in order to spare them that? Why? Because they're of great value to you. My mom recently made my daughter a little stuffed teddy bear. and It's made out of scrap fabric. It's blue and white. doesn't even look like a real bear. I asked her a while back, we were talking about the value of things. I said, I said if we had a garage sale, how much money do you reckon you could get for that little teddy bear? couple of bucks, maybe, 50 cents. But it's valuable to her because grandma made it for her. And it means a lot to her. God finds great value in his creation. Why? I don't know. You tell me why. I don't know why he loves me. You know, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen to what he says in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He spared no expense. He was willing to give his own son, even when we were in sin, even when we were the enemies of God. He said, I love you, and I'm going to do everything I can to restore you to me. And he didn't even spare his own son. Now, Having done that when we were still sinners, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Why? Because we are his glorious inheritance. And he places great value in his relationship with us. Number three, he says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let me just take a moment to consider this word immeasurable. Immeasurable greatness. How do you illustrate that? If something is immeasurable, you can't measure it. You can't define a length, a height, a width, a depth. You can't count it. You can't quantify it. You can't define it. You can't bring, it, bring out a list of things and This is the immeasurable greatness. Why? Because it's immeasurable. You know, when God made his promise to Abraham that he was going to make of him a great nation, you know, Abraham said, God, how are you going to do this? I don't even have an heir. I don't even have a son. God took Abraham outside at night. He said, you look up at the night sky. Look at the stars. Count them if you can. Now, The Bible didn't say that Abraham said, okay, one, two, three, four. God, this is going to take a while. You might want to come back later. Five, six, seven. Why? Because you can't count the stars. Now, there's probably some hot shots at NASA or places like that that think they know how many stars are in our galaxy or the universe. Nobody knows. There's no telescope that reaches to the end of the universe, no matter what they say. Because the heavens declare the glory of God, and there's no end to the universe. And you can't count the scars and you the stars, and you cannot measure the greatness of this power that God has. Now, not only God's immeasurable power, but there's an immeasurable greatness of the power that He has directed towards us who believe. That power 
a great portion of that, an immeasurable portion of that power, God has given to us who believe, those who have obeyed the gospel, those who are His. You know, he uses the same type of wording here later in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Whatever you can ask, whatever you can think, whatever our feeble brains can come up with, God can do far more abundantly than that. He's given us so much more. And notice what he says. Verse 19, the power has been directed towards us. In verse in Ephesians 3, he's saying that work is already at power within us. Or excuse me, that power is already at work within us. It's already working. We're not talking about that inheritance that we receive someday at the end of time. He says that power that God has directed toward you, it's already at work in you. Your knowledge of what God has done for you and what that gives to you, what that enables you to be the sons of God. That power is already at work in your life if you allow it to be. So he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of this power towards us to believe according? You know, power has a source. The lights in this room today, the projectors, the air conditioner that we're all thankful for, runs on power, runs on electricity. Now, again, there are people in this room who know more about electricity than I do, but I know that electricity has a source. There's a box on the side of this building somewhere where all the power comes in, but that's not the source of that power. That box is connected to lines that run who knows how far. Eventually, there's a power plant somewhere where that power is generated, whether that's by wind energy, whether it's by coal or natural gas or water. Probably not water around here. I'm just guessing. But you know, power has a source. And the power that God has directed toward us, this immeasurably great power, has a source. And it's based in something. It's according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ. God had a mighty work that He worked. And He worked it in Christ through the work of Christ. And that's where our power comes from. The power that we have in our lives that's at work within us, it's based in the work that God worked in Christ. It all comes back to Christ. Remember we, that slide at the beginning where we talked about how the blessings are in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved, through Christ. It all comes back to Christ. And so he says, the power that He worked in Christ, there's three things he mentions here. Number one, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And I count this as one because these two things are inseparable. The resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Paul says there's power in that, and I want you to know about this power. The resurrection is extremely important to Christians. You know, the work that Jesus did on the cross, the wonderful, redemptive work He did, the suffering, the agony, the death, the shedding of His blood, it had to happen. He had to pay the price for our sin. And that's where our, God's wrath was poured out upon the cross that day. And the price of sin was paid. It had to happen. But you know, if the story ends there, if that's the end of the story, 
As Paul told the church of Corinth, if in this life only we have hope in Jesus Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If that's the end of the story, it doesn't really help us that much. That sounds strange to say, I know, but it's true. Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would have no hope. The resurrection of Jesus is a fulcrum. If you think about a lever, the fulcrum is the thing in the middle that the lever goes back and forth on. You know, when I was a kid, my dad was teaching me how to pull nails out of boards. And you use that claw on the hammer. He said, sometimes you need to put a block under that hammer and give yourself more leverage. A bigger fulcrum, right? There's more power in that fulcrum when you make it bigger. Well, there's power in the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, concerning his son, that's Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, you can trace the lineage of Jesus, right? You can go to the book of Matthew, the book of Luke, and you can trace the lineage of Jesus all the way back to David, even further to Abraham. And I believe in the case of Matthew, all the way back to Adam. So Jesus' claim that he was heir to the throne of David, that's undisputed. You can trace his lineage back there. But look at what he says next. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power. What declared Jesus to be the Son of God in power? According to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Now this doesn't make Jesus the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Even before he was raised from the dead, he was the Son of God. This declared him to be the Son of God. This showed to the world that this man, not only is he the heir of David, he is the Son of God. And that declaration was made with power when Jesus rose from the dead. That's that fulcrum upon which our faith and our hope rests. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And this is why it's so crucial for you now. Because not only was it the resurrection of Jesus, it was the exaltation. Why? Because when he sat down at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, it says that he is indeed interceding for us. And this is the great thing about the gospel. Not only did the death of Jesus and his blood shed in his death, not only did that provide us the forgiveness of sins, it wasn't just to bring us back to zero kind of thing. God then said, not only am I forgiving your sins, I'm making you my child. You are now joint heirs with Christ. And he lifts us so much far above. And Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for us. He's a mediator. What does a mediator have to do? A mediator has to understand both parties. He represents both parties. And so Jesus, who became a man and lived as we do and suffered in all temptations we do yet without sin, knows what it's like to be a man. And Jesus, who is eternal, the Son of God, who created the universe, knows what it's like to be God. And so therefore, he sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for you and I at this very moment. What an amazing, powerful blessing we have in that. I know, again, you can't read this. I want to talk about this term, the heavenly places. In the, in the first part of this chapter, he talks about how God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there's a lot of debate uh, among biblical scholars about what this phrase spiritual, or excuse me, heavenly places means. Some people think it's talking about the church. Uh, some people say, well, it's just the spiritual realm. That's kind of what I tend to lean towards because he draws a connection here. In the verse we just read, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
And so Paul is making a connection to what he talked about before. The blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, we have those blessings because Christ has been seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. And that's why our blessings are in the heavenly places. So as you study your Bibles at home, these are the kind of connections you need to look for to understand. You know, many times the Bible is its own best dictionary, its own best uh, concordance, if you will, because Paul is already making the connection for us. Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. That's where our blessings are. The power of the blessings, the ability for us to receive those blessings are found because that's where he is interceding for us. Then he says in verse 21 of Ephesians, Far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So now we're talking about Christ's authority over all things. Far above all rule and authority. And here we see again this, just like the word immeasurable. Christ's authority, his power, his might, it's not just a little bit above everything else, it's far above everything else. Far above rule, authority, power, dominion, every name. These words have special meaning. They mean something. The word rule has a connotation of beginnings and origins. The first in a series. And there are many times in the New Testament where this Greek word is translated as beginning. So Jesus is the first ahead and above of all other firsts. Number two is authority. The power of choice. The liberty to do as one pleases. Or an endued ability just because of who I am. I have this ability. Influence and privilege. Jesus has ultimate authority. Power means work and strength and might. Inherent power. Again, just because of who he is. Jesus has ultimate power and strength. Dominion. Think of this in terms of the area in which you rule. A, a nation, if you will. Sovereignty. Power. Lordship. Like a governor. Jesus is the ultimate governor. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. And every name that is named. Jesus is the name above all names. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And so this is the kind of authority that Jesus has in the universe. And finally, he says he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He gave him his head over all things in the church. We're talking about Christ's headship of the church. Now, certainly implicit in this, he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things. Again, we're talking about authority. So what we just mentioned about authority in terms of Christ's authority over the universe applies to the church as well. Christ has ultimate authority in the church. That means he's the man in charge. That means when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to organization of the church, when it comes to our worship, when it comes to the moral standard, Jesus is the final say. The buck stops there. Anything and everything related to the church is governed by Christ. Now, I don't think we would dispute that. Everybody here, we talk about that all the time in our congregations. But there's another aspect of this passage I want to take a look at. Um, this verse in Colossians, he talks about Christ being the head of the church, the body. Everything that he might be preeminent. That means, again, first. Out, of, out, in, out in the front, leading the way. Now he says in verse 23 that the church is his body, the fullness of him. 
What does it mean that the church is the fullness of Christ? Again, many scholars seem to agree that this is, can be a difficult passage to translate uh, and interpret, but there are a lot of ideas out there about what, what does it mean that the church is the fullness of him. The church is his body, and the body is the fullness of him. What does that mean? Some people say, well, it means, you know, what good is a, a head without a body? And so the church is the body of Christ. We complete the head, and therefore we're his fullness. And I kind of see where that idea is going, and there's probably some truth to that. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's what this verse is trying to teach us. He says, the body is the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is Jesus that does the filling. And because Jesus is the one that does the filling, we are his fullness. And I think he explains that a little bit better in Ephesians chapter 4. When he says in verse 15, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So again, into Christ is central, is integral to our understanding of this. We grow up in every way into him. Now we grow up individually, and then when we come together as a group, we grow up collectively into Christ, into him from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. From whom? From Christ. Christ is the one supplying. Christ is the one who is joining and holding us together. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What makes the body grow? Well, when all the parts of the body are working together, that makes the body grow. But what is it that makes the parts work together? It's Christ. And so what does it mean that the church is the fullness of Him who fills all in all? That's Christ. He's the one that does the filling. He's the one that brings us together. He's the one that makes us grow. And He's the one that brings us together. And when we come together, the sum of our, our parts is much greater. The sum of our parts is much greater than the individual, right? The whole. The whole is much greater than the sum of our parts, I think is the way to phrase that actually. It's not just that we come together and it's an additive strength, an additive power, and additive growth, it's multiplicative. It's exponential. And we come together in Christ, and the body grows. But it's because Jesus has filled us. It's because Jesus has supplied us. It's because Jesus has provided everything we need, and we grow in our knowledge of Him. I know this is kind of small wording. I hope that you can read it, but as we think about this prayer that Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, in the very next chapter, he contrasts the exaltation of God. And he goes through this prayer and he talks about how he wants them to have a spirit of, of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. That their hearts would be enlightened. That, they, that focus and clarity would be brought to their knowledge of God. And how they would understand the hope to which they were called and they would cling to that. And now would understand that we, as God's inheritance, are of great value to Him. And that God has directed an immeasurably great power towards us. And that power was based in Christ's resurrection and exaltation. That power was based in Christ's authority and His rule. It's based in the fact that Christ is head of the church. And God is lifted higher and higher and higher. And Christ is lifted higher and higher and higher. And the Holy Spirit is lifted higher and higher and higher. What does that make us think of ourselves? Paul tells us what to think in verse 1. And you were dead. Just stop right there. You were dead. 
You were dead in the trespasses and sins of your life. You walked in these things. You followed the course of the world. You followed the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. That spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath just like all the rest of mankind. You were dead, he says, spiritually. But what does he say in verse 4? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when you were dead in sin, God loved you, he says. And what did he do? He made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. Do we understand that? And we talked about Christ's exaltation, his resurrection from the dead, and him seated at the right hand of God. He says there in verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. The cross just doesn't take it back to zero. God says, that's not good enough. These are my children. I'm not only going to forgive your sins, I'm going to make you my child. And as we read there in verse 5 at the end, by grace you have been saved. No wonder the writer of the song said, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. I don't deserve this. You don't deserve this. I didn't deserve the love of God even when I was in my, dead in my sin, dead in my trespasses. But He loved me anyway. And He worked a mighty work in Jesus Christ. What kind of person does that make you want to be? What kind of life does that make you want to live? What does that make you want to tell other people? What does it make you want to do? I don't know how many times I've read this passage or heard it read in a church service. When Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We just talked about that authority, didn't we? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I believe Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus and I believe his prayer for all the saints and that would include you and I is to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That we would understand what God has truly done for us in our wretched and hopeless and helpless state. And that he's lifted us up to sit with Christ. We are with him, he's with us. I'm with you always, he says. Now, when Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth, I hope we have a greater appreciation of that this morning. But understand that Jesus is not saying here, listen, I'm the head cheese. I'm the man in charge. I make the rules, and I'm telling you, you to go there for and make disciples, and I'm telling you to do it because I said so. No, what he was saying here is I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I have all power. I have all authority. I'm going to ascend to my Father and sit at His right hand, and I'm going to make intercession for you there. And there is no way to the Father except by me. There is no way to the forgiveness of your sins. There is no way to become joint heirs with Christ unless you come through me. I have all authority. There's no other way. The people that are lost in their sins, they have no other hope but Jesus Christ. 
And because of that, he says, go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and baptize them. Go therefore and teach them. This kind of knowledge, this kind of enlightenment, our understanding of what God has done for us, it should build and build and grow and grow in us until it just explodes and splatters on everybody else around us. We can't help but evangelize. We can't help but live our lives in service to Him. And I pray for you, as Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, that you will have this kind of understanding of Jesus Christ. This kind of understanding of what God has done for you. Jesus said, you go make disciples and you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you've never done that, there's no better time than right now to obey the gospel of Jesus and become a partaker in the blessings that are found only in Him because He's been resurrected and exalted to the right hand of God. He's your only hope. If you need to do that, if you need the prayers of this congregation for any reasons, the elders, the leadership here stands ready to help you and pray for you. Please come as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.